I ran across a few additional rules for using the Ouija board. There's more? Yes. And I hadn't heard these before, and I was wondering how many rules are there? (laughs) You might as well just make it don't use the Ouija board. Yeah, exactly. So I did look around a bit to see, you know, what kind of a list I could put together. Yeah. And this is by no means an extensive list. I'm assuming there may be other rules out there but I thought I would run these by you. Okay. So first, obviously, never use the Ouija board alone, right? I think that's a little suspicious. Why? Well, because I feel like they're doing that to make you play with others, which is why it's moving. Okay, so we'll leave that as suspicious. Yeah. Never use the board in your house? No, that's valid. Okay. Never use it in a graveyard? Valid. Never use it when you're ill, depressed, or in any weakened state. I can see that. Makes you susceptible to demons. Yeah. One person should be the leader and the only one to ask questions. See, I've never heard just one person asking questions, though. I've always heard that everyone asks a question. I think you can ask questions, you just have to funnel it through the leader. Oh. Do not ask for physical signs. So don't say, hey, knock on the walls and let us know this is real. Yeah. Never joke around. Never insult the spirit. Well, that's a given. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's like, okay, yeah. (laughs) Certain questions you should never ask. When will I die? When is the end of the world? Any questions about God? Does that just piss them off? Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. Maybe there's just some things we shouldn't know. Yeah. If you contact a spirit and it starts going through the alphabet or counting down, immediately end the session because it's a malevolent spirit. So it knows it's alphabet. Presumably, yes. And it knows how to count. (laughs) Yeah. Well, count down. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's the Sesame Street malevolent spirit. (laughs) (laughs) If you contact a spirit and they are making a figure eight or infinity symbol, immediately end the session. Hmm. Never invite anyone you contact to join you in this world. I feel like that's also a given. Yes. And of course, always say goodbye. Never leave the planchet on the board. Does it say why? It says it can allow the demons or spirits to escape the board. That's weird. But it also says to always properly store the board after use. So don't leave it sitting out to begin with. Well, yeah. I always see people leaving it out, though. Yeah. Sage the room after you are done? Yeah. But done where? If you can't do it in your house, where are you doing it? Somebody else's house? (laughs) (laughs) I guess if you do it in your house. So you're already breaking the rules. Yeah. And lastly, if you must dispose of a board, do it properly. Never burn it. It doesn't work. And if you hear an Ouija board scream when it is being burnt, you have 36 hours to live. What the? <laughs> I'm not sure where the 36 comes in, but... Yeah, that's kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> you 
You're supposed to break the board into seven pieces, sprinkle it with holy water, and bury it. Seven? That's so random. Yeah. Yeah. For you, it's like, why is it an odd number? <laughs> I was just, can't you like donate the board and it's someone else's problem? <laughs> yeah, <really. laughs> yeah, it didn't say anything about donating it. Yeah. Anyway, thought that was interesting. So certainly not going to be doing the Ouija board anytime soon. Yeah, I have a theory as to why you can't do it in a graveyard. Why is that? Because there's so many spirits there that you would just never end up leaving. But why are the spirits in the graveyard? <laughs> they have like a reunion every I know. I few think, years. <laughs> I would think that would be the last place spirits would be. That's true. <laughs> now that you say that, that's true. Anyway, what do you have tonight? I have actually absolutely no idea. Really? Really. Tell me, maybe I'll say, <laughs> oh yeah, I remember now. Well... Tonight, I'm talking about Winnie Ruth Judd. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> which well, is... I know we had talked about doing this. I kept bugging you about doing this story. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, which is who you recommended. Yeah. Well, I didn't know you were actually going to do it. Though. Yeah, I decided to do her. Okay. Now I'm excited. I'll stay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm glad. I wonder what the breaking point of you leaving is going to be. <laughs> So Winnie Ruth Judd is a woman who killed and dismembered two of her friends and then stuffed them into travel trunks. Now I feel bad about getting excited that you were doing this story. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. I didn't know she killed anybody. Oh my, yeah, because I'm going to do a story that (laughs) isn't true crime. Yeah. (laughs) She was born in Indiana on January 29th, 1905. Her father was a minister in the Free Methodist Church. As a teen, she told her parents that she was pregnant, and her parents took her to the doctor to examine her and concluded that she was still a virgin. Later, Winnie ran away from home, and when she returned, she made claims that she was kidnapped and impregnated, but once again, examination showed no proof of pregnancy. These fantasies were a concern to her parents. They hoped that it was an immaturity thing and not anything psychological. After school, she found work at the Indiana State Hospital. This is where she met her husband, Dr. William C. Judd, who was a World War I veteran. He became addicted to morphine after being wounded in the war, and he was 26 years older than Winnie. Wow. In 1924, while Winnie was still a teen, they got married and moved to Mexico as William had gotten a job offer there. While living there, she really wanted a baby, but her husband didn't think she was stable enough to have a child. She ended up getting pregnant, but William convinced her to not carry on with the pregnancy. Later, she became pregnant again, but this time she had a miscarriage. William lost his job eventually, and they weren't left with much money due to his morphine addiction. He was committed to the veteran hospital while Winnie found work in Phoenix, Arizona. She first worked as a tutor for a wealthy family, She met their next-door neighbor, Jack Holleran, who was a partner in one of the largest lumber yards in Phoenix. He was married but was a well-known ladies' man, and it didn't take long for Winnie to fall for his charm. Wanting to make more money, Winnie Judd found work as a medical secretary at a private medical clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. This is where Judd met Agnes Ann Leroy, an x-ray technician who also worked at the clinic, and her roommate, Hedvig Samuelson. Leroy and Samuelson became friends while in Alaska and moved to Phoenix together for the drier climate after Samuelson contracted tuberculosis. 
After Judd's husband was released from the veteran hospital, he lived with her for a bit until he left after finding a job in L.A. Judd moved in with Leroy and Samuelson, but eventually moved out to be closer to the clinic. On the night of October 16, 1931, Leroy and Samuelson were murdered by Judd after an alleged fight among the three women over a conflict of interest. It was reported that all three were interested in John Holleran. The prosecution of Judd's murder trial would suggest that fights over men and the relationship between Leroy and Samuelson broke up the friendship between the three women, and that jealousy was the motive for the killings. Both Leroy and Samuelson were killed with a 25 caliber handgun in their rented bungalow. According to prosecutors, after the two were murdered, Judd and an accomplice dismembered the body of Samuelson and stuffed the head, torso, and lower legs into a black shipping trunk with the upper legs being placed in a beige travel bag and hat box. Leroy's body was stuffed, still intact, into his second black shipping trunk. Oh, so she had an accomplice. That's what it was suspected. Oh, okay. I did not know that. On October 18th, two days after the murders, Judd boarded the Golden State Limited passenger train from Phoenix's Union Station headed towards L.A., she would travel overnight with the trunks containing the bodies and her left hand bandaged from a gunshot wound. At 7.45 the next morning, the trunks were immediately under suspicion upon the arrival. There was a foul odor and fluids leaking from the trunks. At first, the baggage agent, Arthur V. Anderson, suspected the trunks contained contraband such as a dead deer. He tagged the trunks to be held and asked Judd for the key, but she claimed she didn't have it with her. Judd's brother, Burton McKinnell, picked her up from the station completely unaware of the crime and the contents in the trunks. Later that afternoon around 4.30, Anderson called the Los Angeles police to report the trunks. The police discovered the bodies after picking the locks. What was she planning on doing with the bodies? Probably just dumping them somewhere. Seems like if you were heading to L.A., you would be wanting to dump them in the ocean? But Most I didn't likely. know if that was her intent or not. Possibly. Makes more sense. Judd's brother had already dropped her off somewhere in L.A. where she then disappeared to hide out somewhere. She ended up surrendering to police in a funeral home on October 23, 1931. The murders were reported in headlines across the country, and Judd was referred to as the Tiger Woman and the Blonde Butcher until eventually the case became known as the Trunk Murders. Phoenix police entered the bungalow where Leroy and Samuelson resided for the first time. Neighbors and reporters were also allowed in, which destroyed the original integrity of the crime scene. The following day, the landlord took out ads to be placed in the Arizona Republic and the Phoenix Evening Gazette newspapers, informing the public that tours of the home were available for 10 cents per person. (laughs) That is messed up. Yeah. I feel like you hear so many stories about people going in and out of the crime scene before it gets locked down. Yeah, If back it gets then, locked down at all. Yeah, back then, you'd think they would have had more common sense. Yeah, but nope. Within the next three weeks, hundreds of seekers toured the bungalow. During the trial, Judd's defense protested by stating, quote, by the advertisements in the newspaper, the entire population of Maricopa County visited that place, end quote. The police were able to determine the two women were shot while asleep in their beds. The two mattresses were missing the night the police entered. One mattress was later found with no bloodstains on it miles away in a vacant lot, 
the other remained missing. No explanation was ever given as to why one was found so far away or about what happened with the other one. The trial began January 19, 1932, three months after the bodies had been discovered in the trunks. The state argued that the crimes were premeditated and that the relations between the three women had deteriorated over some weeks since they had allegedly argued over the attention of Jack Holleran. It was determined that Judd had self-inflicted the gunshot wound to her left hand to try to support her self-defense explanation. Judd's defense took the stance that she was innocent because she was insane, but did not introduce the self-defense argument for the record. None of the dismembering aspect of the double murder was addressed in court because Judd was tried only for the murder of Miss Leroy, whose body was not dismembered. Judd did not take the stand in her own defense. The jury found her guilty of first-degree murder on February 8, 1932. An appeal was unsuccessful. Judd was sentenced to be hanged February 17, 1933, and sent to Arizona State Prison in Florence, Arizona. The death sentence was repealed after a 10-day hearing found her mentally incompetent. She was then sent to Arizona State Asylum for the insane on April 24, 1933. When it was discovered during the trial that Holleran and Judd had been involved in an affair, Holleran also became a suspect of having been involved in the killings. Holleran was indicted by a grand jury as an accomplice to murder on December 30, 1932, following new testimony from Judd. Judd referred to the testimony as the whole truth. A preliminary hearing on the charge against Holleran was held in mid-January 1933. Judd was the star witness. In testimony that lasted almost three days, an emotional judge told her story saying, quote, I'm going to be hanged for something Jack Holleran is responsible for. I was convicted of murder, but I shot in self-defense. Jack Holleran removed every bit of evidence. He is responsible for me going through all this. He is guilty of anything I am guilty of, end quote. Judd claimed she was invited to the apartment to play bridge. She testified that there was an argument about Judd's introduction of Holleran to another woman, and that she killed Leroy and Samuelson in self-defense after they physically attacked her. According to Judd, she met up with Holleran shortly after the killings and returned with him to the apartment. After seeing the bodies, he went out to the garage, returned with a great heavy trunk, and told her to not tell anyone. Under cross-examination, Judd admitted repacking Samuelson's dismembered body in a trunk and other luggage two days after the murders. Holleran did not take the stand in his own defense. His attorney told the court that Judd's story was nothing more than the story of an insane person and argued that since it was testified that the two women were killed in self-defense, that there was no crime committed, therefore Holleran could not be tried for anything. Holleran's attorney asked for the charges against his client to be dismissed. On January 25, 1933, the judge freed Holleran, saying that the state's case was inconsistent and that trying him would be an idle gesture. After Judd's death sentence was repealed, she was committed to the state's only mental institution, Arizona State Hospital in Phoenix. From 1933 to 1963, Judd escaped from the institution six times. <laughs> In one instance, walking all the way to Yuma, Arizona, along the old Southern Pacific Railroad tracks. Jesus. (laughs) 
She escaped one final time on October 8th, 1963, using a key to the front door of the hospital that a friend had given her. <laughs> a friend gave it to her? Yeah. Somebody that just happened to have a key to the mental hospital? Maybe she manipulated someone that worked there? Yeah. I don't know. Judd ended up in the San Francisco Bay Area where she became a live-in maid for a wealthy family living in a mansion overlooking the bay and using the name Marion Lane. Her freedom lasted six and a half years. Her identity in California was eventually discovered and she was taken back to Arizona on August 18, 1969. Judd was paroled and released on December 22, 1971 after two years of legal wrangling. Judd moved to Stockton, California. In 1983, the state of Arizona issued her an absolute discharge, meaning she was no longer a parolee. She died on October 23, 1998, at the age of 93, 67 years to the day from her surrender to the Los Angeles police in 1931. That's crazy that she got out on parole. Yeah. After all of the escapes, well, first the murders, obviously. Yeah. And then all the escaping and being in California for six years while she was on the run. Yeah. And then she comes back and gets paroled. Yep. That's messed up. Yep. She got her freedom and I don't know what to say about that. That seems to happen a lot. Yeah. That's such a bizarre story. Yeah. It's scary. Makes you... uh question your friends sometimes <laughs> makes, makes her want to not have friends yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm safe oh my gosh <laughs> uh, but that's it that's all i have at least so um what is your story for tonight <laughs> Alrighty, tonight i thought i would talk about japanese urban legends should be interesting Yes, so first pronouncing these names should be fun. <laughs> <laughs> and as I said, urban legends. So I'm not implying fact or fiction, not dismissing anything. Yeah. Just telling the stories. The other day I was reading the legend about Kuchisaka Ona, which I'll talk about later, but I thought I would look into other legends while I was digging into it. Yeah. The first legend is Japan's version of Bloody Mary. Hmm. Tori no Hanakosan, or translation, Hanakosan of the toilet. What? <laughs> <laughs> the toilet ghost is the spirit of a young girl named Hanakosan who haunts school bathrooms. I'd be pissed if that was my. What? That was your. If I was the ghost. That you were stuck in a toilet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If that was my legacy, that's what I was trying to say. Oh, I see. The origins of the legend vary. I read she was possibly a World War II era girl killed while playing hide and seek during an air raid. Not too sure about that. Or hide that she, and seek? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That was kind of bizarre. Or that she was murdered by a parent or stranger. Or that she committed suicide in a school bathroom. That's sad. Yeah. I mean, it's all sad. Yeah, they're all sad and they're vague. The suicide one seems to make the most sense for some reason. Yeah. As with Bloody Mary, this is where kids will dare each other to summon the spirit. But she is specifically summoned in a bathroom on the third floor and in the third stall. That's specific. 
Yes, not sure the reasoning behind that, but that's part of the legend. Then from the third stall, you have to knock three times. So Hanako-san. Oh my God. Hanako-san. <laughs> Hanako-san. Penny, penny, penny. Oh <laughs> We're going to be cursed. <laughs> no, you're supposed to say, are you there, Hanako-san? Just knock three times and then are you there, Hanako-san? Yeah. There are variations of what happens if she is there, but generally she will say, yes, I am. And then she will either appear or a bloody hand will reach out from the stall door. Mm. Which one would you rather have? (laughs) Neither. (laughs) I wouldn't do this. The only description I found of her was that she has a bobbed haircut, the traditional Japanese okapa style hair, you know, the short hair above the shoulders, straight hair and the short bangs. Yeah. And she wears a red skirt or dress. So again, kind of vague. I was expecting white. It's always the girls in white. Well, scarier too, white with blood all over it, right? Yeah. She reaches out and will pull you into the (laughs) toilet, presumably down to hell or another part of hell because I think school bathrooms are already some kind of hell in their own. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. This kind of sounds like a shitty situation (laughs) to be (laughs) in. The legend is believed to go back to the 50s, which I guess would coincide with the modern era school system after the war. Yeah. The next legend is about the cursed poem, Tomino's Hell. Oh, I didn't know poems could be cursed. Yes. That's the English translation of the title. I won't attempt the actual Japanese name. The poem was written by the Japanese poet Saijo Yaso and was contained in one of his collections published in 1919. His poems are said to include heavy symbolism and wordplay, thus leaving a lot of room for interpretation, Yeah, which is the case with Tomino's Hell, where there are many interpretations out there of what the poem actually is about, and even whether Tomino is male or female. I think one of the more popular interpretations is that the poet was expressing his grief after the loss of either his father dying in World War I or the loss of a sister. But like I said, there are many different theories out there and I won't get into them all. Yeah. Supposedly, allegedly. You haven't said that one in a while. (laughs) (laughs) If you read the poem out loud, you will be cursed and suffer some type of loss misfortune, or even die. Oh. Or all of the above. I guess dying is all of the above, right? (laughs) (laughs) So it's only if you read it aloud? Yes. So not if you just read it? That's my understanding. Well, I I won't risk it either way. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, yeah. There are rumors of people suffering all type of ailments, and even a rumor of a young girl who died after reading it. Oh. But all are pretty vague stories, no real details, smells of urban legend. Yeah. There was one detailed story about a Japanese filmmaker who wrote and directed a movie based on the poem and supposedly died suddenly. Hmm. In my quick search, I could not verify whether the movie noted was actually based on the poem. Kind of hard when you're looking into Japanese movies. Yeah. But his death was actually nine years after the movie was made. And it wasn't a sudden death. He died of a terminal illness he had been suffering since he was 19 years old. 
Oh. Yeah. So I'm not going to mention his name or the name of the movie, even if I could pronounce them. Yeah. Because I don't want to disrespect the man because I think that is definitely made up. Yeah. Another tidbit, and this is maybe what fueled the legend, is about a book that was published in 2004 that was supposed to be based on the poem. This is something else that I couldn't verify right away, so I won't mention the book or the author. But he is said to have written about suffering a terrible fate if you read the poem out loud. Hmm. So there's that, right? Yeah. That seems like the most likely place where the, the legend started. I have not read the poem. Honestly, I won't read it Yeah, in my head or aloud. <laughs> yeah. I don't blame you. I do wonder whether the English translation would really have the same effect. That's what I was wondering. Yeah, but I'm not going to take any chances. No. I would suspect not for how different translations are to the actual. What if you read it twice? Would it cancel each other out? <laughs> <laughs> no, you have to read it backwards. Oh, so reverse <laughs> to cancel it. cancel it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Up next is Okiku. The doll. Oh my gosh, not another <laughs> doll. <laughs> this legend is from Hokkaido, which is the second largest island of Japan. In 1918, 17-year-old Akichi Suzuki bought a doll for his three-year-old sister, Okiku. She loved the doll so much it became her best friend and she took it with her everywhere and, of course, even slept with her. Yeah. Sadly, Okiku died a year later after having a severe fever. Oh. I had read in one place that the doll was supposed to be buried with her, but for some reason it was not. Didn't find a reason of why that didn't happen. Yeah. But the family kept the doll in a shrine to their daughter. There were different accounts of whether Okiku named the doll after herself or whether the family named it after her. But either way, the doll was also named Okiku. Yeah. The doll had a traditional bob cut, just like I was talking about with the other girl. Yeah. But over time, the family noticed that the doll's hair was getting longer. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. The family believed the doll was possessed by the little girl's restless spirit. In 1938, the family decided to move from their home in Hokkaido and for some reason decided that the doll should remain on the island. Not really sure why, but they entrusted it to the Buddhist monks at the Mananji Temple, where it now resides. That's weird. It is said that visitors are not allowed to photograph the doll, although there didn't seem to be any shortage of pictures on the internet. That sounds like another doll we have. Yeah, so assuming... Assuming they're real photos, right? Yeah. The hair was also supposedly tested and confirmed to be human hair, but didn't see a lot of detail on that. I take it it wasn't human hair before. Right. Well, I'm assuming. Today, Okiku's hair is said to be down to her knees. The monks started trimming the hair after one of the monks had a dream where Okiku asked them to do it. Not sure if that was Okiku the girl or Okiku the doll that asked. Yeah. But anyway, so they trim her hair now. Oh, that's kind of cute. Yeah. And scary. I definitely wouldn't keep the doll in my house. No. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, the next legend is about a woman some thousand years ago in Japan married to a samurai. 
I believe she was married to a samurai. Different stories on that one, but samurai just sounds cool. Yeah. She was very vain, and if she discovered someone looking at her in town, she would ask them, am I pretty? I found she would ask, am I pretty or am I beautiful? But I'll go with, am I pretty? Yeah. Her husband caught her having an affair, and he slit her from the corners of her mouth to each ear and asked her, who will think you are pretty now? Oh. She died and eventually returned as the vengeful spirit Kuchisaka Ona, or the slit-mouthed woman. Hmm. That's sad. Yes. She appears to those walking alone, usually at night and usually children. She is seen wearing a surgical mask, which even pre-pandemic wasn't unusual in that part of the world. Yeah. Where people are usually considerate of others and will wear masks if they are sick with a cold or something. She will approach and ask, am I pretty? If you say no, she will kill you with a large pair of scissors she is carrying. Yep, (laughs) that's it. (laughs) If you answer yes, she will take off her mask, revealing her grotesque, bloody smile and ask you, how about now? If you answer no, she will kill you. Yeah. If you answer yes, she will cut you from mouth to ear to give you the smile that she has. What? How is that fair? (laughs) (laughs) If at any time you try to run away, she will just appear in front of you again and challenge you with the same question. Huh. So this was the story that sparked my interest in the Japanese urban legends. I thought it was interesting because unlike with like Bloody Mary or Hanako-san, where you actually summon them, so you're asking for trouble, right? Yeah. This story is interesting because you're minding your own business and then you get into the situation where there's no way out. Yeah. Now, that's what I liked about the story, but then after reading some other tellings of it, I did find some that were talking about some escape options, such as there's a few answers you might give to confuse her long enough for you to get away, like saying, you're average or meh, so-so. (laughs) or I even heard that you could distract her with candy or money. (laughs) I don't know. Here, have some candy and then run away. Oh, my gosh. Personally, I think it was creepier when there was no escape. Yeah. (laughs) Because I was thinking how brutal that is of a legend. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. But that was it. That's all I got. So, moral of the story is if someone asks you if they're pretty, you always say yes. Let's see. Yes. How about now? Yes. You get your mouth slit open. Well, it's better than death. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't be happy about it. (laughs) (laughs) Assuming you survive it. Well, did she die from the mouth slitting or was it something else? I'm assuming a thousand years ago, there wasn't much coming back from that. Well, yeah, okay, that's and true. And her husband, husband probably just left her to die. That's sad. Yeah. That was it. Anything else? I don't think so. Except for now to creep people out, I'm going to ask them if I'm pretty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, creep them out more ways than what I mean. What? <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you think people are going to think if you go around am i pretty well it's why are they looking at me then because <laughs> that's creepy yeah i guess if you're wearing a mask too yeah yeah <laughs> all righty this will wrap it up thank you very much for joining us 
Make sure to visit next week for more weird and creepy stories. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 12past3 or email us at podcast at 12past3.com. Good night. Good night.